about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Hey, thanks for reading that for us. And do keep that passage open just so you can follow along as we look at it together. Hashtag MeToo has been one of the most troubling hashtags, hasn't it, 
of recent years. It sort of summarized a whole movement, summarized a huge number of people on this planet saying that they have been on the receiving end of horrific sexual abuse. So many women have used that hashtag to say that they have been abused, usually by powerful men. And they've put it on a Twitter feed and behind that, that one little hashtag has been so much damage and so much pain. Turns out that the sexual revolution that was meant to liberate people, was meant to liberate women in particular, has often been used by powerful men to get more of what they want. Now that consent is often the only bit of sexual morality left, it's been really easy for powerful men to get consent, to get what they want, to use women for their own advantage. And the damage caused has been immense. I'm sure we've all read, we've all watched some of the interviews as some people have shared how much damage and pain has been caused to them. And I guess some of us in this room could use the hashtag MeToo. We've been on the receiving end of people who have made a mess of our lives by using us as the object of their desires, by abusing us sexually. As we recognize the muddle we have made of sex and sexuality, as we live in the light of the Me Too movement and the scandal that has been exposed, where can we as a society turn to for help? Where can we go to to get out of the mess that has been made? Let's be honest, the options aren't great, are they? Are they? One moment a public figure has been held up for all of us is this great example of sexual liberation for us to follow, and the next moment they've been exposed as a sexual predator who's used their sexuality to abuse other people. Let's be honest, we can't in the church hold up our hands and say, well, we've got it all right. So often the church has preached sexual morality, but some of our own leaders have been exposed as sexual hypocrites. Back in the UK, evangelical churches are reeling from another example of that happening in our midst. And it'd be great if in this room tonight, some of us could stand up and say, hey, I've got it right, follow me, do what I do. I I I'm perfect in this area. But let's be honest, I doubt any of us has got the courage to do that. Has got the integrity that means we can say, this is an area of life that I have got absolutely perfectly right. As well as this room sadly being full of people perhaps who have had our sexualities damaged by other people, this room is also sadly full of people who have used your own sexuality, used our own sexualities to, to damage other people. Just think of what your web browser would show, how it would condemn sadly many of us in this room who have used flickering images on our mobile phones, on our laptops, in, to basically abuse people sexually, just to pleasure ourselves. Where can we go for help? In a society where everyone has made a mess of this area and where some of us in particular have been damaged massively by others, where can we go to for help? It often feels, doesn't it, that we're all alone. That we're all alone with the mess that has been created. Listen to a Christian scholar reflect on our situation. 
he writes this. We do not, he's writing of humanity, we do not really have any clear standpoint of experiential purity from which to figure the topic of sexuality out. There's no human being you can go to who can say, I've got it sorted, watch me, listen to me, follow me, and you won't get it wrong. None of us can stand up and say that tonight. There's no one in this world today that we can turn to who can say, I'm the example for you to follow. What do we need? Where can we go for, for help? Well, let's just think, instead of big concepts, about the sort of person that would help us, the sort of person it would be handy to have to help us. It'd be helpful, wouldn't it, to have a human being who has had a sexuality, who does want to know what it is to feel sexual desire, who does know what it is to face sexual temptation, and yet has not mucked up this area. It'd be really helpful, wouldn't it, to have somebody who had always handled themselves with purity, who could speak with absolute integrity into the hurt and the pain and the confusion and the mess in our world today. Wouldn't it be great to have someone like that? Someone who would fit that bill, who could say, follow me, look at me, listen to me. Wouldn't it be great to have someone who knows what it's like to be you, who knows what it's like to be me, and who can satisfy all the sexual desires that all of us so often struggle to make sense of? struggle to cope with wouldn't it be great to have someone who could say follow me listen to me watch me but also find that all your desires can actually be most of all satisfied in a relationship with me (laughs) but where on earth are we going to find that that dream figure that perhaps figment of our imaginations that sort of fantastical figure. Well, in John chapter 4, and as Jesus Christ meets a woman at a well, turns out that he has, he alone has, the clear standpoint of experiential purity that we need. He is someone who is like us, who's a human being, who knows what it is to experience sexual desires, who knows what it is to experience sexual temptations, who can say to us, watch me, do what I do, listen to me, follow me, be satisfied in me and me alone. As we survey a world in which there is a mess on every side when it comes to sexuality, in Jesus we meet someone who can help us who can help you, who can help me tonight. Now, I guess many of us may have been in John chapter 4 before, but we we perhaps haven't noticed before how dripping with sex and sexuality this, this meeting between Jesus and this woman at a well is. How Jesus is being deliberately presented here as the perfect human sexual being that we can and we should be turning to with our imperfect sexualities. So the first thing we need to do is just note the romantic context there is to this chapter towards the beginning of John's eyewitness account of Jesus' life. So just keep a finger in in, in John chapter 4 and just turn back a page and notice that that Jesus has kicked off his public ministry in chapter 2 at where? At a wedding. Famously, Jesus went to a wedding at Cana in Galilee and they ran out of wine and wonderfully, Jesus provided some pretty good 
potentially Australian wine, uh, for the guests to enjoy. And in doing that, he was fulfilling a role that the bridegroom should have fulfilled. He was doing the job of a bridegroom at that wedding, providing the wine to celebrate a wedding. And the significance of that is that the whole of God's people at the time were waiting for someone who would be the bridegroom to God's people, who would be the person who would satisfy God's people forever, who would be the person that, as it were, would whisk God's people off to a new experience of life with God forever. And so when Jesus comes along and at a wedding plays the role of a bridegroom, we're meant to think something significant is coming here. Someone significant has stepped into history here. In chapter 3, we meet John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, when he looks at Jesus, describes Jesus as the bridegroom. Chapter 3 and verse 29. Again, he's seeing Jesus as a romantic figure. A figure, they're raising the expectation that that, that Jesus is, as it were, going to be the one who is going to satisfy people. He is going to be the one that is going to be God's bridegroom for God's people. And now in chapter 4, we meet Jesus, this bridegroom figure, hanging out in, well, he's hanging out in the biblical equivalent of a singles bar. That's what a well was. We read down in verse 6, he was hanging out in a well, and that's what a well was. was. It was a singles bar. Just think of the Old Testament. If you know the Old Testament, you'll know that wells were so often where people met the one, where people met uh, their future spouse. So um, Isaac met Rebekah at a well. Uh, Jacob meets Rachel at a well. Moses meets Zipporah at a well. So when we find Jesus meeting a woman at a well, we're meant to think this is a romantic place. This bridegroom is at a well. He's at the equivalent of a singles bar. Something romantic is surely about to happen now because that's what happens at wells. They are the biblical equivalent of a singles bar. And as the story continues, we perhaps think that romance is in the air because Jesus meets a woman at the well. And we're thinking, hey, we think what's going to happen next. And then what does Jesus do? He asks her for a drink, verse 7. And we think, we can work out how this is going to end. This is a couple meeting for the first time at a singles bar. Jesus says, would you like a drink? We know the story. If this was a film, we know the sort of music that would be playing. We know how the lighting would be done. A romance would seem to be just about to kick off. And I guess some of us are already beginning to feel a little uncomfortable. This is Jesus we're talking about here. This is Jesus, God's son, Jesus, the perfect human being, hanging out at a singles bar with a woman and offering to buy her a drink? Has Jesus not heard of the Billy Graham rule? Don't know if you know about the Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham, big evangelist um, in the States, uh, resolved early on in his career never to be left in a room, never to meet up with another woman on on his own. It's apparently a commitment he kept uh, basically the whole of his life, the one exception being Hillary Clinton. How about that? Found that out earlier. (laughs) But otherwise, the big rule for his life was never alone with a woman. Because, why? He wanted to be a person of integrity. He didn't want anybody to get the wrong idea if he hung out with them. And you can see the wisdom in that in many ways. 
But here you have Jesus breaking that rule. You have Jesus meeting up with a woman at a singles bar in the middle of the day. Nobody else is around. The disciples have popped off on a shopping trip. He's tired. And a very puzzling conversation is what happens next. Jesus behaving in socially unacceptable ways already by just even starting a conversation continues to be socially unacceptable by continuing the conversation. Look down at at verse 10 of chapter 4. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who is it that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? You're greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to drink water. Boy meets girl, and they have a discussion about where lasting satisfaction comes from. Jesus says he can provide lasting satisfaction, and we think, is this a pretty corny chat-up line? No. Jesus isn't on the pool. Jesus isn't out to seduce this woman. Jesus isn't out to use this situation in which most people would be thinking he is about to take sexual advantage of her. Jesus doesn't behave in that way. Look down at where he takes the situation next. The romance rather disappears at this point. Verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you have now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. What's going on here? What is Jesus up to? Well, it turns out he is not another powerful man trying to seduce her. No, he is a different man. He's a different man who is trying to save her from a whole series of unsatisfying sexual relationships. And what's remarkable is that this woman gets that Jesus is different straight away. Look down at verse 19. So the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. I can see that you're different. I can see that you're from God. And what does she do next? Well, she thinks this is my chance to ask all the deep theological questions I've been saving up for a long time that everybody talked about in society today. Uh, Number one being, where do you worship God? Do you worship God as the Samaritans did on the mountain or nearby where this well was? Or do you worship God in Jerusalem? What's the answer, Jesus? You're a prophet from God. Tell me. Jesus says Jerusalem's the place where you worship God. But there'll be a time going when everybody will worship God in spirit and truth and it wouldn't be restricted to a particular geographical area. She dismissively replies to Jesus' good theological answer down in verse 25, and then Jesus responds to her dismissive response with these words in verse 26. She says, look, the Messiah will tell us everything. You're a prophet. I'll, I'll, take, it to the, I'll take it to the next person in her hierarchy when he comes along. Then Jesus declared, verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. 
I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the person you have been waiting for. I am the bridegroom that God's people have waiting, waiting for who has been sent by God to help you, to help you answer these questions, to be the one, to be the one that will satisfy you forever. Turns out that Jesus doesn't just talk about how he will satisfy her, how he can provide all that she needs. He doesn't just say that as a, as a chat-up line. No, Jesus says that and he means that. And Jesus says that and he can carry through on his promise to be the one that will satisfy her completely because he's God himself in human form. He is the person she's been longing for the whole of her life. She's the per he's the person that humanity has been longing for the whole of our life on this planet. He's the person she was created to be completed by. He's the person we were created to be completed by. Everything she longs for, everything she wants in life, will be, can be, satisfied in him. Jesus is the one she's been waiting for. Now at this point you expect the title credits to come up. We seem to have come to the climax of this incident. And what happens next is that the disciples slightly ruin the atmosphere. Uh, they blunder on back from their shopping trip. And to be honest, they're slightly appalled by what, Jesus, what they see. They come back and they see Jesus, who they left you know, safely alone, having a bit of a snooze. They see Jesus talking to a woman, socially unacceptable. Jesus talking to a woman at a well, a signals bar. Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman at a well. Jesus talking to somebody who had a bit of a reputation at a well. And they are shocked. Look down at verse 27. And just see well, how John records something that he went for himself. He was one of the disciples returning from a shopping trip. Verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised, like English understatement here, to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? <laughs> they immediately see a potential scandal. They, they haven't heard about the bloody Graham rule, but it's the rule that they were keeping to too under some other name. And they're worried. You only broke the rule about talking to a woman for one reason. And they're slightly troubled that Jesus has been caught speaking to a woman. What has been going on here is their question. That's their fear. Well, the woman herself makes it very clear what's been going on, doesn't she? Look down in verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. She knows what's been happening. Nothing dodgy has been going on. Jesus has behaved impeccably towards her. She has finally met a man who has not objectified her, who has not sought to seduce her, who has not sought to use his power over her. And she's a changed woman. She rushes back into a community where no doubt she would have been on the outside because of her sexual history, and she tells them, I have met a man who knows everything about me. I've met a man who I think potentially could be the one we've all been waiting for, the Messiah, the Christ, the bridegroom. 
She knows that she needs him. She knows that he will satisfy her. She knows that they need him and that they will be satisfied by him too. And we need to, as it were, pick up our invitation to to meet the Jesus we meet here in John chapter 4. Because in this chapter, we and the mess that we have made of our sexual lives, we, in our need for help, find someone who can help us. He's a human being, like you and like me. He has sexual desires and appetites, and he faced sexual temptation here, as we do. And yet he behaved with complete integrity. He can say to us tonight, look at me, follow me, do what I did, follow my example. He can look us in the eye tonight and say, all your sexual desires, all that you really want for in life, can be satisfied in me and me alone. You don't need to go chasing after the other one who will complete you in another human being on this planet at the moment. You can find the person that you most need in me, says Jesus. Isn't that great news for our world? Our hashtag MeToo world where so many people are so confused, when so many people have experienced so much pain, where so many people have made such a mess, when we find ourselves just at a loss of what to say and where to point people to and where to go with the mess that we ourselves have made. Isn't it great to, to turn to John 4 and find that Jesus, that Jesus knows what it's like to be us, but that Jesus hasn't made a mess like us. Think of your friend sexually abused by her stepdad who's got herself into a pattern where she keeps on going out and sleeping with men who abuse her too. She's in a cycle and that just seems to be repeated again and again and again. She seems to be drawn to men who will mistreat her again and again and again. John 4 reassures her that there has been one powerful man who hasn't used his position to abuse women, women, and his name's Jesus. He will treat her with compassion. He will treat her with understanding. She needs him more than, than anyone else. Are we going to introduce her to him? Uh, think of your colleagues promiscuously sleeping around, taking a different person to bed most Friday, Saturday nights, just to try and fill that deep hunger for intimacy that they have inside them. John chapter 4 tells us that there is someone who will satisfy that deep need for intimacy, who will satisfy that deep need for intimacy in a way that will gradually take away that hunger and thirst, that deep desire they need to, to be completed by another person. Ends That search for that completion ends with him. They need him more than anyone else. Are we going to introduce them to him? Think of so many of us in this room struggling with pornography. When we're tired, we find ourselves clicking on websites, swiping to websites that we shouldn't be visiting. That's just our pattern when we're tired. 
Well, in John chapter 4, we're introduced to Jesus as a human being who, verse 6, knows what it is like to be tired. And in the context of his tiredness, knows what it's like to, to be confronted with a situation in which he can muck things up sexually. And yet doesn't. Jesus knows what it's like to be tired. Jesus knows what it's like to be so tired that he can't even sort of go in on a shopping trip. He's just had enough. He knows what it's like to be tired and yet not sin. Not escape into a fantasy world. Not swipe along to images that he shouldn't be. In Jesus, we have someone who knows what it's like to be you, who knows what it's like to be me, but hasn't failed like us. We need his help, his empathy, his love, more than anyone else. Think of many of us in this room, probably this evening, struggling with being single. For whatever reason, you might be same-sex attracted like me. You might be single for, for whatever reason. Those of us who long for a marriage that will allow us to rightly express our sexual desires, just, just long for there to be another person. John chapter 4 introduces us to a Jesus who has to have, who's had to cope with similar, similar sexual desires. Who's been a single person, like you, like me. Who's been a single person in a society where everyone got married, apart from him. Who faced a sexual appetite, who lived with a sexual appetite. He knows how hard it is. He knows what you feel. He knows what I feel. He knows what I go through. He shared our pain. We need him more than anyone else. We can go to him with our pain. We can go to him with, with how hard that sometimes is, knowing that he, he can look us in the eye and say, I know how you feel. I've been there. That scholar I quoted at the beginning said, we do not really have any clear standpoint of experiential purity from which to f- figure the topic of sexuality out. That was his sort of reflection on, on humanity, on society today. We don't have anybody who can say, from personal experience, I've got it sorted, turn to me, follow me, do what I do. There's no one, except there is. Jesus Christ. God in human form does have, uniquely has, the clear standpoint of experiential purity, the lived experience from which to help you and help me figure the whole topic of sexuality out. As we, as we see the mess in the world around us, as we see the mess in this room today, as we see the mess inside each one of us, he is the only one in the position to help us and to change us and to give us all that we need. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, in the midst of the mess that we see in the world around us, the mess that we see in ourselves when it comes to sexuality, we thank you that we can turn to your son, Jesus, And know that he knows what it's like to be a sexual being. He knows what it's like to be a human being. He knows how how much these things are difficult. How painful these things are. 
And yet he is in the position to help us because he got this right. Father God, we thank you for the chance we've had to meet Jesus through your word tonight. And we pray that that whatever mess we've made, whatever our situation, we would turn to him with the mess. And we just ask for you to help us through him and to, in him, satisfy all our desires. And in him to provide us with the, the water that will, that will forever quench our thirst for a relationship with you. We pray this in his name. Amen. Beautiful picture of our Jesus. Uh, we, we do have some questions that have come in, uh, rightfully provoked. Uh, by a great word. Uh, it's got to invite you to come on back up. Uh, feel free. <laughs> Sorry, you just got down for a second. You got a drink. That was yeah, good. Yeah, I got a drink. That's fine. <laughs> We're all good here. Um, they're going to come up on the screen. If you've got some others uh, on the way through, uh, you can keep sending them in. We only have time for a few, though, just so you know. We won't get to everyone necessarily. So here's your first question, Ed. You said that Jesus satisfies fully. When talking to people who don't believe Jesus, how do we speak of this satisfaction, which for many doesn't seem to stack up against the pleasure on offer without him? Yeah, thanks for the honesty of this question. Um, how do we speak of it? Well, I think partly in, in doing the sort of thing we, we, we've tried to do tonight is actually help, is help people see that we are in a bit of a muddle without someone who can speak with authority and integrity on this issue. Um, and actually see that, you know, whether that's with an illustration from your life or from society as a whole, that we, that we, we have got this muddled. And I think this is a chance to share personal testimony and to share the satisfaction we found in Jesus and to share the relief it is to have someone to help us on this. So I don't know about you, I just find there's a huge relief in, in knowing and following Jesus that I have someone to turn to who's reliable. You know, at different stages of my life as a Christian, I have been given completely, and as a human being, I've been given completely contrary advice about my sexuality. When I was a teenager growing up, I was told to uh, cope with my same-sex attraction by repressing it and never talking about it, and certainly not living out a sexual relationship. You know, as a teenager, the HIV crisis was, was raging in the UK, and that was the advice. Do not talk about it. Do not do anything about it. And then as I've grown up, the advice has gone to the other end, which is, you know, now... People saying to me, I cannot believe that you're not doing something about it. Get on and get yourself into a sexual relationship with a man really soon. I've been told loads of different things all the way through my life and contradictory things. And, you know, it leaves me pretty confused and, uh, and wondering which bit of advice to follow. Uh, but in Jesus and the sort of things that Jesus promises and says here, I have somebody who has authority and integrity to give me the help that I need. And also I have a Jesus who says that he will and does, he does and will satisfy me. Now, am I saying that I had lived a completely and utterly satisfied life? No, because I so often don't go to Jesus for satisfaction. I'm running around after other things. But the more and more that I've looked to be satisfied by Jesus, the more and more I've sought to, as it were, see him as the one in my life who will satisfy me, the more I have experienced the satisfaction that he does promise, he guarantees us in this passage. And so that is just the beginning of an answer to a question. If you want more, do come and grab me after. That's fantastic. And here's another one. As a woman, the Billy Graham rule is frustrating because it communicates to me that as a woman, I'm nothing but a sexual object. How can this be done well so as not to make women feel shamed 
or shun? I think probably by binning the Billy Graham rule. I just think it's. I just think it's not. Yeah, I think I can't see how it were. I, yeah, ex exactly. I was just reading a book actually on the plane over um, that was just making exactly that point that it makes. Yeah, it may, that's exactly what the Billy Graham rule makes women feel. And uh, Jesus broke it himself, and Jesus shows us there is another way um, to, you know, to conduct. Now, you know, there will be some situations in which, for different reasons, people want to flee areas of sexual temptation. But to say that any Christian man that meets any Christian woman, something inappropriate is going to happen is totally inappropriate. So personally, I think... I see why Billy Graham did it because of the pressures on him and the sort of the way in which he was held up and people were deliberately trying to entrap him. But generally, Billy Graham rule, I think, should be binned. Let's see how long I stay in Sydney now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ed, is being attracted to the same sex a sin like greed? It depends on what we mean. So I think, you know, being attracted to beauty is not a sin. So being attracted to beauty in a sunset or a piece of art um, or a piece of music or another human being is just how we were wired. We're wired to, to appreciate beauty. So when I see an attractive man, a man I find attractive, and I'm wowed by their beauty, what do I need to do? Well, I need to recognize that the beauty I see in them is a passing beauty, they won't look like that in 20, 30 years' time. But also, it, it's just meant, it, if I see beauty in another human being, what am I seeing? I'm seeing the image of God in them. I'm seeing them reflecting God's beauty. I'm seeing the beauty of, creation, of the creator in a creature. And I can use that occasion of just being wowed by beauty to be wowed by God again. And to give thanks to God for the beauty that he's scattered in other people and in sunsets and in paintings and in music. So, yes, I can and often do see a beautiful man and I do think what it would be like to consume them and I do make them an idol and I do worship them inappropriately. And that's sometimes, that ex that's sometimes where it goes. But actually that moment of attraction is actually an opportunity to worship God himself if I use it in that appropriate way, I think, wow, God, thank you for the beauty you've scattered all over the place. Thank you for how beautiful you are. Thank you for this little glimpse into how much more beautiful you are than that person that's just walked past me. So um, is being attracted to, to, to the same sex a sin like greed? Um, I think, no, if you see it like that, in that sort of, that way of thinking. But actually, it can be an occasion for sin, often is in my life, but it doesn't have to be. And it can be used uh, well, and it can be used to bring you closer to the God who made you. Got any more, Mike? One more. We have time for one more. Ed, what, what are some of the ways that we can speak Jesus into our lives in our times of struggling with porn? Um, well, I think, you know, one, one way would be the sort of way we looked at, which is, you know... Um, Jesus, you know, it, it, depending on the circumstance, you know, if, you, if it's when you're tired, you know, Jesus, Jesus knows what it's like. You can pray to him. You, you know, if you're tired and you're battling temptation, you can pray to Jesus saying, you know exactly how I feel, please help me. Um, and you can pray for him to help you in that situation. 
but also you can say, well, what am I, what am I wanting here? Why, why am I being driven to porn? Now, different people are driven to porn for different reasons, uh, but often it's a quest for beauty. Similar sort of thing that we've just been talked about. Not that you go on porn to find beauty, but you just recognize, I, I'm, I'm wanting beauty. The beauty I'm wanting in pornography is best found by looking at, uh, at Jesus and looking at something in an appropriate way that's beautiful. Or if it's intimacy, you know, I'm just, I'm just really wanting, I'm, my, my desire for intimacy is leading me to, to pornography. So actually, I need to make sure that I'm feeling that need for intimacy in a more intimate relationship with God, but also in a more intimate relationship with other people and an appropriate non-sexual intimacy with other people. Now I find in, in all areas of sexual temptation that the sexual temptation is less, far less. In fact, it's not even, it doesn't even register when I'm enjoying an intimate relationship with God in Christ. You know, when I'm praying to him and I'm hearing him speak into my life. And when I'm enjoying appropriate intimacy with other people. And relationally, I'm not sort of feeling that there's no one around and there's no one that understands. Those are the times when actually it, it just disappears. And actually when I'm enjoying intimacy with creation, when I'm enjoying beauty and creation around, when I'm you know, enjoying uh, God's natural world, when I'm enjoying art, when I'm enjoying music and those sort of things, again, I find that actually the need for pornography is it, it, gone because I'm actually enjoying appropriate intimacy. So often we say in the Christian life, don't we, we just say we should stop doing that, but we don't think of the... We don't think of the good things we're trying to find in the wrong way and how we can find those good things in better ways, in right ways. And so often people are looking for intimacy in pornography. Well, think about how intimacy comes in those areas I've mentioned and more would be some advice. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.